So the proper boundary for human freedom is person and property, basically. And if we can actually learn to respect that boundary, as natural law has been trying to tell us for a thousand plus years, then that's how we would create the most wealth in the world and have peace. The problem has been we've never had an implementation of property that even approaches inviolability before Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is the most expensive private property right in history to violate. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome back to the BCB Podcast. Genuinely hope each one of you is having a fantastic day. And if you're not, I can tell you it's about to get better. Because in this episode, Josh and myself, Dan, are joined by acclaimed entrepreneur, writer, and philosopher, Mr. Robert Breedlove. Rob has a truly special voice and perspective with writing and speaking skills that simply boggle the mind. He's enamored with Bitcoin because of the way he sees it advance individual sovereignty and freedom around the world. Breedlove is the host of his own podcast, The What Is Money Show, and he also regularly appears on other podcasts and media outlets. He's had riveting discussions with the likes of Michael Saylor, Eric Weinstein, Preston Pish, Jordan Peterson, Lex Friedman, and the list could go on. In this hour, we discuss topics including Bitcoin as insurance on central banking, why dogmatism is unhealthy, how fiat currency violates property rights, spirituality, religion, and Christianity, Rob's move away from Santa Claus, sex on your birthday, and much more. We will link a bunch of Rob's speaking and writing material down below in the show notes. Be sure to check that out. You can follow him on Twitter at Breedlove22. That's at B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E 22. You can follow us on Twitter at Blue underscore Collar BTC. If you are finding our content here at the Blue Collar Bitcoin podcast valuable, then you can assist us in reaching a broader audience by subscribing or following on whatever podcast app you're using or YouTube, as well as leaving us a review. If you want even more details on how to support the show, including how to stream sats while listening, check out the support section down in the show notes. Now, buckle up and enjoy an hour of us going deep, dare we say cosmic, with Robert Breedlove. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Aloha, Rob. Welcome to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. How are you today? Good. What's up, Dan? What's up, Josh? It's great to meet you guys. I appreciate you having me on. Pleasure is all on this side of the table. So, Rob, I, uh, I get off duty this morning. I come home, get home at my usual time, like 9 a.m., walk through the front door, hug and kiss my wife and baby girl, make a cup of coffee, saunter into the living room, and just start blasting BTC001 on Bitcoin fundamentals with you and Pish. <laughs> and my wife rounds the corner and she's kind of giving me this blank stare and I pause and I look up and I'm like, what's up? Now, a little background too on my day. My wife knows that this conversation is scheduled. Uh, today actually also happens to be my birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. So my wife has this expectation as she should that there's going to be some birthday intimacy today. <laughs> so she stops, she's staring at me and she goes, am I going to get cock blocked by Robert Breedlove today? <laughs> <laughs> That's literally how my morning started. Now, uh, she sounds like a keeper. I like that sense of sarcasm. Um, fortunately, that didn't come to fruition, like nap time delivered, as it often does. Um, nice. But needless to say, man, we're, yeah, we're delighted to have you here. Um, you've had a big impact on the two of us, the way you amplify this message. And that, that episode I just highlighted, that is our go-to orange pill resource. That is the two-hour intro we give people to Bitcoin. And then I think Josh and I will both agree that your four-hour extravaganza with Lex Friedman this year is in contention for the best single podcast episode I have ever listened to. Josh, would wow. you agree with that? 
I do. And Dan, thanks for saving us the details. Dan usually goes into a much heavier details with the uh, exploits with him and his wife. So he did save us on that one a bit, at least. Behind firehouse doors. That's the only place it happens. He's he's kidding, honey. If you're listening, that's not true. I'm not. You better audit this. I would audit all these episodes. This is getting cut. Robert, we, uh, Dan and I, I mean, we've talked about, I mean, you and Preston are two of the people that have influenced us the greatest in the space, um, digested just about everything the two of you guys have produced. And one of the things that we want to really highlight is, or just think about, or or we want to hear you pontificate about is like, what is it that really has inspired your thinking? I guess I'm just really looking for some of the exploration of books and content that outside of Bitcoin that really struck a chord with you. First, I just want to say I'm honored you guys have found the work to be so valuable. Um, It really took me a long time to find this path. And everything before this was just really unfulfilling in retrospect. You know, I've always been finance focused. I was, you know, mostly a career CFO, also was in public accounting. And none of that, there's always something missing. You know, it always felt like things always felt slimy. Every business, every deal, every every industry until discovering Bitcoin and now finding this whatever infinitely deep and complex rabbit hole is just like giving me the space to totally run free and like try to figure things out and just be a conduit for ideas, you know, really big ideas. And I, it honestly just thrills me when people tell me that how much impact it's had or how much value they've, they've rendered from it because that's, I mean, makes it all worth it, you know, for a long time, it felt like, especially in the beginning, like feels like you're working in a vacuum almost. You're like writing and talking and studying about this thing. Everyone thinks you're crazy, right? <laughs> I, I got my Bitcoin. This is my only tattoo. I was, I guess, 33 years old when I got it. So it's not like I'm some kind of guy covered in tats and I got a Bitcoin tat. It's like the first tattoo I got at a relatively mature age. And I got it late 2018. So like one year into a Bitcoin bear market, Bitcoin was down from 20,000 to 3,000. And it was in that, it was kind of like the the bottom of that phase where I was just writing, thinking, talking about this thing all the time. And people were increasingly thinking I was, I had joined a cult or was somehow consumed some Kool-Aid and had lost my mind. Um, so it feels good to see it kind of come back around. It's like, oh no, like this, this thing is real. It, it is very impactful. Frankly, without Bitcoin right now, I think we'd be in, in very, very bleak situation worldwide. Yeah, we resonate with that. I'll try to answer your question now, but I just wanted to give you that that background that it means a lot to me that that you guys find it valuable. And I appreciate you reamplifying the message as well. Um you know, I don't I I don't really know where to start. It's like when I was a kid, I was just born curious, I guess. I mean, aren't we all curious to some extent? But I was like excessively abrasively curious. I remember being six years old. And I knew Santa Claus, I hope there's no kids listening to this. <laughs> no, they're safely upstairs. I, I knew Santa Claus was bullshit, basically. You know, I was like, I was like, mom, there's no fucking way there's a guy that flies around the world and drops off a bunch of fucking toys. <laughs> the toys look just like the toys in the toy store. Like, you guys are lying. Why do you do this? What's the point? And we were, I remember we were in a long car ride somewhere and I literally hounded my mom, I think for four hours straight in this car ride. I was like, mom, just admit it. Santa's not real. Like, but I'm going to stay up all night and prove it. You guys are stop lying to us. And I finally wore her down and she admitted it at the end of the car. I said, okay, it's not real. It's just a thing. It's a tradition. But if you tell any of your, your, tell your brother or your cousins, I'm going to deny it. So I guess I kind of had don't trust verify in my DNA or something. And, um, of course, I immediately told all my cousins and my brother. I was like, I told you, mom admitted it. Santa Claus is bullshit. And um, I was also like just always infatuated with the stars. I grew up in Tennessee, kind of outside the city. So we had really good dark skies, you know, and we spent a lot of time outdoors. So camping, sleeping on trampolines, just we're outside a lot, catching fireflies, all that. And um, I don't know, just always gawked at the stars and was wondering what in the what's going on with all that like what is all this and um i guess that just fed my curiosity really deeply and then i've talked about this a little bit before but um 
my mom was very adamant on the importance of education and specifically literacy, like reading on your own. She used to really, from a very young age, she was teaching me uh, a lot of mathematics, a lot of spelling and writing and whatnot. And then around the age of kind of 10 or 11, where they start giving you, at least in our school system, they give you a book to take home for the summer and you're supposed to read. Well, like clearly I was a kid. I didn't want to do that. But my mom like really made me stick with it. And I'm so glad she did because once I started reading, the first book I read, I think it was Hatchet. You guys ever heard of this book? Yeah, I have. Yeah, a kid is basically stranded in the wilderness after a plane crash and it's a survival. You know, he's just learning how to survive basically. And it's really interesting. And um, I don't know, that just became like once I kind of got the hang of it, it just became the way to satisfy my curiosity. So just read. Like, just you want to think about something and wonder about something. Well, all of a sudden, I felt like I had this power I could take into my own hands, this software, you know, mm-hmm. ability to handle software, I guess, is how I describe it now. But you start really imbibing a lot of information, but then also reflecting on what you're, you're reading. And then you, could, you have all this freedom to go across topic, too. So long short, I got, I went straight to the deep end of the pool when I was young. So I guess I'm like 13, 14. I start reading all these astrophysics books like Brian Greene's uh, The Elegant Universe, I think is the name of the book. Stephen Hawking's Universe in a Nutshell, A Brief History of Time, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that was just, I mean, these were books I could barely understand, you know, but I was getting that, I guess, just exposure to these really big ideas like about the deepest why imaginable, like what is the nature of space and time and reality. And yeah, so that was kind of where I got my start, I suppose. And then as I got older, you know, in high school, I had this kind of dim apprehension of what I wanted to be when I grew up. And it was just a businessman. You know, my dad was an accountant and he also ran a lot of businesses. So he's kind of entrepreneurial. And I thought, I don't know, I just wanted to be a businessman. So, you know, I assumed I was like carrying a briefcase and sending faxes and collecting checks. I didn't really know what it meant. But as I got closer into college, um, you know, I started to really get interested in economics. Frankly, I was reading The Economist magazine a lot and was thinking about money. You know, I was thinking about what, what is, what's going on with all this. And eventually my curiosity led me into the central banking rabbit hole, which is 2000. This was the creature from Jekyll Island around 2005, 2006. So I'm like 20 years old, 19, 20 years old at this time. And that was like, probably my, my wake up call as a libertarian was just like this corrupt money is really fucking up everything in the world. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's really bad. It's just our, you know, human beings have struggled with slavery throughout our entire existence. We've steadily gotten more, or less visible, more sophisticated forms of it, in my opinion. And I think central banking is just the latest implementation of that, as I've written about. So I hope that gives you guys kind of a general background of where I came from and why I like to think, I I guess that's why I like to think deeply about topics. It's something there's, I was predisposed to it naturally, but then I've also kind of been feeding that curiosity for most of my life. Yeah, I resonate with some of what you're describing. And I do think that something characteristic of most thoughtful Bitcoiners is this innate skepticism. Like, I think Mm -hmm. that is the root of a lot of first principle thinking. Some Mm -hmm. experience in your life that has caused you to strip down realities that you took for granted and and answer the most fundamental questions. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we'll have time to get into this today, but Josh has heard me speak a lot about how my, my spiritual and religious journey has really informed my ability to see Bitcoin. Long story short, I grew up in a uh, conservative evangelical Christian home. I actually, I have a bachelor's degree in biblical and theological studies. Thought I wanted to be a full-time pastor. My life has taken me in a totally different direction than that. I I think I, maybe it was you with Vallis. I heard you kind of, I don't know if you have some parallels, but kind of bounced all the way over to the end of your neo-atheists, like your Harris's, your Hitchens, your Dawkins, really still resonate with a lot of that. And kind of I got to this point where I emptied all the furniture in the house out on the front lawn. And now in my 30s, I'm deciding like, hey, what pieces of furniture do I want to reintroduce? Yeah. But I think going through that process reflects my innate curiosity about Mm -hmm. all 
realities that everybody takes for granted. And I think that same process was sort of transposed on top of our monetary system for me. And as part of the reason I was able to get a glimpse of what's going on here. Yeah, I would say, you know, there's another manifestation of that. I've, I've been talking to Eric Weinstein recently, and he made the point that trait disagreeableness, you know, there's the big five personality profile, which is it's ocean is the acronym. I think it's openness, neuroticism, extroversion, agreeableness. I'm sorry, conscientiousness and neuroticism. So there's five. Weinstein makes the point that trait disagreeableness is very common among the rich, which is interesting because mm. it's also really common among Bitcoiners. Because I think you just have to be, as you said, skeptical, right? Which, and I'm not a psychologist, but disagreeable. It's like people tell you something and you're like, you know, why? You're trying to think through it. You're, you're constructing a worldview around it versus taking something at face value. Trait disagreeableness is a characteristic that that tends um, causes you to tend to be that way. I think that's higher in the uh, population of prisoners as well. Just so you think about it out there, <laughs> the disagreeableness. Yeah. All either going to be rich or you're going to go to prison. Like you're generally not going to just middle the line here. Yeah. Maybe those two worlds will collide with Bitcoin here at some point in the future. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of how I see the this paradigm unfolding actually is if you think of like a sphere of human interest there's there are those that are very agreeable i don't know that they're agreeable necessarily but they're they're conforming they're close to the fiat currency spigot right they're producing the rules they're living by the rules granted the rules are kind of bent to favor their interest anyway so i would call that kind of the corrupt core of human beings and then if you look at the outermost edges of that sphere I think that's where the libertarians, gold bugs, disagreeable types live. And they're like, this is all bullshit. You know, we're kind of living at the edge. We're more self-sufficient. And when that sphere collides with the Bitcoin sphere, which is like a brand new parallel, you know, it's like a parallel economic order, right? This is something completely from outside. It didn't emerge from within. It's it's something that's, you know, disruptive to, to civilization, potentially even. It's like those that are on the outermost layers of that sphere are going to be the first to migrate to Bitcoin. They'll be the first to understand it because they're the first to collide with it. You know, they're the first to yeah. be informed by it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So that's kind of the visualization I have. Um, and I guess my, I did have this similar, I grew up Christian. I grew up in Tennessee. So I was raised Southern Baptist. Um, nothing too radical. Like we went to church often, but no one was like, you know, forcing me to read the Bible three hours a day or anything like that. It was just like, you know, we went, I enjoyed it mostly. I don't really have any bad experiences from it, but uh, a trade-off I made getting into astrophysics and hardcore science at a young age was I became pretty rational atheistic too. So by the time I was 15, 16, 17, I was like fully convinced Christianity was a nice communal fairy tale that yeah. people liked to you know, tell, I you know, it was just like a night. It was like Santa Claus basically, yeah. you know, yeah. cope with the harsh realities of being a finite human being on a vicious planet. hundred percent. And that's kind of, it's kind of where my brain yeah. goes and went. It makes me kind of think of the idea when I actually listened to the, the Preston uh, interview with you this, this morning too. When, uh, when you were talking about plan B's model, you said, um, and I think you said this was one of Taleb's books where you characterized this out of that all models, not, some models are useful, but all models are wrong. Yeah, all models are wrong. Some are useful. Most are dangerous, I think you said. Right. And I, I'm just thinking about that in terms of religion. So, I mean, those are just mental models, really. And some are useful, some are dangerous, and pretty much all of them are wrong. Man, we're going cosmic early. <laughs> <laughs> we talked to Pish last week, and at the end, nice. at the end of the conversation, we were getting kind of spiritual, and we, we you know referenced your What is Money series with him, which we'll link in the show notes. And he's yeah. like, Oh, you're talking to Rob? He goes, get cosmic, baby. Get cosmic. <laughs> we're, we're, get, we're hitting it early here. Yeah, well, I can't help myself. I'm telling you. Um, so I, I wanted to, to follow what you were saying earlier, too, because I, so very rational, atheistic, young, but then by you know very good fortune, I had a, a slight back injury in college. And I, you know, I, I had done some mission work actually in college. So I was still like, I sort of believed in the communal value of this fairy tale, even though I didn't really believe in the metaphysical truth of it. Yeah. 
So I was kind of like kind of dabbling in Christianity, but also being a total college, like, you know, party animal guy. So, um, but I had this minor back injury. The girl I was dating at the time had been taking a yoga class. And so when, after college, we moved to Nashville together, I started going to yoga as kind of just a, a means to rehab my back. And dude, I was immediately like, what is this? Like you do these yoga classes and something happens. Like you feel energy coursing through your body in a new way. You're you're like in different dimensions inside of yourself. Like it's a very spiritual experience done properly. And so I started to become more spiritual, really, I think by virtue of of practicing yoga. Um, And then yoga got me into meditation. And I practiced very seriously for probably 11 years. I did yoga very seriously, you know, three or four times a week, intense Ashtanga, vinyasa, like a lot of movement, a lot of flow. This isn't laying on the ground and stretching for 30 minutes. I mean, it's a it's a discipline. Kicks your ass too. Yeah. And then coupling that with a meditation regimen that was somewhat intermittent, I'd be very serious about it for six months. And then I would slack for six months. And I'm still kind of in that actually. I'm I'm slacking currently, but um I've done it enough to know how beneficial it is. And so all that was just I was just becoming more spiritual, reading more philosophy. I read a lot of ancient Eastern philosophy. Um, you know, the book of five rings by Musashi is one of my favorites. Uh, I read a lot of Krishnamurti, um, Sun Tzu, you know, art of war, all of that. And, um, so that was diffusing my, my rational atheism. And then it was actually kind of fast forward. I'm already into Bitcoin. Um, a lot of people in Bitcoin started telling me about Jordan Peterson. They're like, you've got to listen to this guy, like read his books, listen to his lectures. He's something else. And finally, after like the third or fifth time I heard about him, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go. I don't typically listen to lectures, but let me give it a shot. And I started with his lecture series, The Psychological Significance of the Bible. And it was just like, holy moly. And if you guys haven't listened to that, I mean. I've listened to parts of it. It I is, have not. I'm going to, I'm going to check it out. Yeah. He just, there's something about a person's approach to Christianity where they're just like, Jesus saves, you need Jesus. Go get Jesus right now, son. Like I am so averse to that extremely mm-hmm. dogmatic, yeah. like yeah. loud, you know, the disagreeableness kicks in. You're like, what are you trying to sell me? Or like, what's going on here? Yeah. But Peterson takes a totally different approach, right? It's like, he doesn't even, he won't even say he believes in God. He says he acts as if God exists. And then he's just dissecting the biblical corpus and evaluating it through all these different scientific lenses. Right. And then he establishes consilience between these perspectives. He's like, all right, you know, Carl Jung looks at it this way. Nietzsche looks at it this way. Clinical psychology looks at it this way. Um, you know, he's everything. He's talking about like computing science. And he just framed it in such a beautiful way that it just helped me like really cultivated my interest in Christianity very deeply again. And now like I read the, I've I've read pretty much the entire Bible over the past year. I read with my daughter a lot. I have a three-year-old daughter. So when we fall asleep at night, I'm reading the Bible and man, it really is the ultimate classic text. There's some good shit in there. It just bears unbelievable fruit and it can be evaluated so many levels of interpretation. So one of the things I'm playing with now, because I'm so impressed with Peterson's which is essentially a psychological perspective on the Bible, right? He's yeah, taking that's a good, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really inspired and I'm playing with this idea now. I'd like to do something similar, but for socioeconomic focus, because the Bible talks a lot about money and saving and sin and redemption and debt. Um, you know, the Hebrew word for debt and deceit are very closely related. I think that's not that's not a coincidence that we have debt-based money that's very deceitful. Right. At this point, I really believe in the primacy of action over stated cognitive belief, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the power of praxis, as, as an Austrian economist might say. And so I'm trying to just adapt my patterns of action to be like a disciple of Christ, like to live as Christ-like as I can, something like that. But then I also hope to take this this 
Petersonian approach to Bitcoin as well. Like, I don't want to go out into the world and be like, Bitcoin, you need Bitcoin, guys. Bitcoin saves. You got to listen yeah. to me. It's all this yeah. Bitcoin stuff. I want to instead approach it with a sense of like wonder and inquiry and like asking questions and and embodying the principles in action versus sure. being this, you know, Bible thumping zealot. So I, Dan and I have talked about how it's at some point on your journey in this thing, like you just avoid talking about it because you feel like uh, a used car salesman trying to push it on people. And then you're like, you take it back and you say, all right, well, I'll explain it if somebody asks me, yep. but they better have like two hours, you know, because how do you even begin to scratch <laughs> the surface for 30 seconds? Yeah. Like to give their passing interest, like any substance at all, it's, it's really difficult and it's, it's, that's tough. When I say what I'm about to say, I, I, hear myself and it sounds like a douchebag. But what I have said before is people find Bitcoin when they're ready to find Bitcoin. And, yeah. and most folks today aren't ready to find it. And, and one thing I want to say before we <laughs> pivot off the cosmic here is just, we say on the show, like we are allergic to dogmatism. Mm. If your mind is ever closed, if you're ever mm. certain about anything, I'm immediately suspicious and dare we say skeptical of you. Mm. I think the phase I'm at with religion and Christianity in particular, is how do we shed what I deem to be toxic, literalistic, and fundamentalist tendencies, which do exist mm -hmm. and are extremely prevalent? Mm -hmm. So how do we get rid of these anachronisms while still harnessing profound and positive themes from thousands of years of human history? This is the gray, difficult, nuanced question to tackle, and there are no quick answers. And um, I've just, my interactions with JP is just like, he's willing to get into that gray and wrestle yes. with the actual questions instead of trying to form quick conclusions or have nice, sexy answers. 100%. Like he's almost so complex. Like the, my first introduction with him was his, he has like a six hour series with Sam Harris. Mm -hmm. And I remember he, his ideas are so complex and take so much time to develop that for him to try to even package them in a six-hour discussion is nearly impossible, right? And that's a tribute to the complexity, nuance, and gray of these existential questions. There are no easy answers. Yes, yes. And that is where the fruit of progress is born, too, is in the gray. Mm. You mm. never, you know, when you establish this fixed perspective. It's like, here's the right answer. Here's the wrong answer. Here's us. Here's the them, right? We're always bifurcating reality, right? And the, the, the reality of human beings is that we are individually self-owned and self-responsible. So even with something like fiat currency, and I'm trying, I'm modifying my language about this a lot recently because I've tended to vilify the central bank or vilify the state. I don't want to vilify particular individuals. It's the mode of being, right? When we have, frankly, it all comes down to the crux of private property. When you have a group that lives off of the private property rights of others, the rulers, right? And the ruled, which are basically working and having some of their property violated to fund the interest of the ruled, of the rulers, that's the... That's the the schism, I think, in this global hive mind of humanity is that you're always going to have, uh, you're violating the axiom of individual self-ownership through taxation, basically. So inflation, taxation, regulation, any imposition on private property whatsoever, it is contradicting this axiomatic reality that we're each individually self-owned and self-responsible, right? We all can participate in mutual consensual exchange. There's never a need, there's never a justification for non-consensual or uh, non-consensual exchange or theft. And so I think that's what we're coping with. You know, it's not, and it's, we've all been on probably both sides of the table, right? It's not saying like, you're the ruler and I'm ruled, especially in the modern system. It's like, I don't know, did you get a, a SBA loan for your business? Well, then all of a sudden you're a ruler, right? You benefited from some of the proceeds and then maybe the next year, you made a lot of profit and paid a big tax bill. You're back in the ruled. So it's very gray and constantly shifting. But the core wound in my, and I'm trying to write about this more, is you know, the, the market is basically the macrocosmic fractal of the individual mind. 
And it lo- looks really interesting both ways because you start looking at the mind. There's like bid ask process going on in your mind to yeah. allocate resources. We <laughs> see it in nature. It's like every like markets yeah. are universal, right? Yeah. Um, but in the sphere of human action, we disrupt and distort natural market processes through coercion. So the proper boundary for human freedom is person and property, basically. And if we could actually learn to respect that boundary, as natural law has been trying to tell us for a thousand plus years, then that's how we would create the most wealth in the world and have peace. The problem has been we've never had an implementation of property that's even um, that even approaches inviolability before Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is the most expensive private property right in history to violate. So that's why this is where we get into the deeper promise of it is that it gives us, you know, potentially a brand new foundation for actual civilization, like an actual mm. human state that's free of coercion or at least coercion minimized. Yeah. And and I think what's so remarkable is it yeah, that may be the undercurrent, but it's got incentives for folks from all different walks of life. I mean, that this mm. thing pulls in the powerful as well as the powerless. Like we, we did yes. a, whatever, an hour with Gladstein. I mean, it's his Trojan horse piece is remarkable and it, it just enumerates why this thing is appealing for all people everywhere. And I almost feel like we are past that tipping point where I, I do feel we're past that tipping point. We're, we're at a size and magnitude and distribution where impossible is the word that comes to mind when you think about trying to put this back in a box. Yes. Yeah, it's I think another useful framing is that self-interest becomes greed once it encroaches on the person or property of someone else, mm. right? Like that's what the marketplace is, like go and pursue your individual self-interest. And so long as you don't violate anyone else's person or property, you yeah. will create the best outcomes for yourself and for the collective. The problem is we've never been able to to reify that line and make it very strong, right? Very expensive to cross that boundary. We've, we've done better, like even systems today, right? There's, there are disincentives to violating other people's property, but in scaling that disincentive, we, we've also given this power to like the central bank that just violates property by, you know, control enter basically on the, the US dollar database. So Bitcoin just makes that line very bright, right? Like you are individually owned and self-responsible. Now go pursue your self-interest and it will properly channel self-interest such that it doesn't become greed because it becomes really difficult or expensive to violate the property of others. So this is like the beginning of the free market or the beginning of civilization proper, perhaps. You said you're a libertarian. I'm sure that Hayek has been someone that you've studied and read over the years. And he has a quote, which I tweeted earlier today, which is, I don't believe we shall ever have good money again before we take the thing out of the hands of government. We cannot take it violently out of the hands of government. All we can do is by some sly roundabout way, introduce something they can't stop. Yeah. That is exactly what we're looking at here, which is insane. And so I'm sitting there thinking about this afterwards. And I had read his Road to Serfdom book years ago. So I started, um, I just wanted to get a high level re-understanding of that book and just a couple of notes from it that I thought were interesting and some real interesting parallels to what we see today because this book was written, just a little background about him for everybody listening. He was an Austrian economist, born in Austria, was, he fought in World War I. He was in Germany, he was in Austria, Germany, and England during World War II. I, I didn't look at exactly the times, but the point is, is that he was living through both of these wars. He saw these times happen. And he said, as he watched things unfold in Europe, revolt against freedom in Europe and the move towards centralized management of society was apparent to him that democracies that were uh, economically free had become so successful, they began to take their prosperity for granted and chafed at the uneven distribution of wealth. And Germany and Russia and Italy adopted central planning and became dictatorships. And the West assumed that planning and tyranny were unrelated this warning that we, I think today in this age, we should be heeding very seriously. Like this is the kind of stuff that is just echoing into our times right now. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just, it's really scary stuff. Yeah. And And it it all, and it also makes me think of the fourth turning and how that entire idea that model kind of plays out. And it it just, 
all of these things kind of resonate with me just looking at these different, uh, through these different lenses. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the way I'm currently evaluating what direction we're going is to just look at the rate and severity with which private property is being violated. Because that's essentially, you know, it's entrepreneurship making, you know, we're producing wealth and trading, there's peace or there's statism, which is harvesting that economic surplus. And the the more integrity private property rights have, the more we're going towards peaceful entrepreneurship. The more private property rights are being violated, the more we're moving the other direction towards statism. And right now, I mean, it's rampant, right? Fiat currency inflation is private property violation. They're just taking wealth from some and giving to others. Full stop. All the business closures, all the regulations, all the mandates, the specter of vaccine mandates, these are all, that's by the way, the vaccine mandate, that is the most severe violation of private property imaginable. Mm. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, that, that's been bothering me and pissing me off for quite a while, but I digress on that. It's, it's literally violating bodily autonomy. Full stop on that. Exactly. And this is, these are the Nuremberg codes, right? We learned this after world war, after both world wars, but it's, so the rate at which we're violating property right now is very alarming to me. And another thing Hayek said, he made a great point in that book, The Road to Serfdom, that power, when it's very concentrated at the top, so when the state has excessive power over an economy, which is what fiat currency, frankly, gives it. It enables it to pass fiat law and pass all these other mandates, right? It's, I tweeted this out the other day that fiat currency is a money mandate used to fund many other unfavorable mandates. So its very nature is concentrating power into fewer and fewer hands. And Hayek makes the argument that no human can withstand that. Like it the power changes character. It becomes something else. It becomes noxious to the soul. And doesn't matter. It's, so it's such a cognitive fallacy when people are like, oh, just it's Biden's fault. It's Trump's fault. It's this guy. It's that girl. Like, no, this is systemic. It doesn't yeah. matter what human you put in that position. They will be corrupted at, at, from a cellular or soul level. And it will, you'll have this outcome in some form or another. You cannot put benevolence into the seat of authority. What you have to do is destroy the seat of authority itself, right? We should all be, live under the principles of life, liberty, and property. And we know, we know life and liberty. It's so obvious. We all understand that. It's like, yeah, I can say what I want, go what I want. This is a very core to Western civilization. But we've obscured property. We don't understand that property is as much a product of freedom as life and liberty. They're all the same thing. So, yeah, I'm worried, man. We listened to you and Voorhees recently. Mm. And first of all, this may come as a surprise. Uh, it may even irk some of our audience because we are like functionally, we're quote unquote maximalists. Like all we mm. own is Bitcoin and we had all coins and we sold them and it just based on fundamentals and use case and problems being solved, Bitcoin's where it's at in our head right now. Right. But like Eric is someone who clearly has pure motivation and his level of investment and understanding are orders of magnitude beyond us two clowns. So for us to, <laughs> to, to cast stones is adorable, as I would say. But we just, he's, he's just an unbelievably gifted speaker, thinker, and I thought the conversation you had with him was very mature, very well done. I think what I Thank still you. struggle with hearing, what doesn't budge my opinion, at least where my money is, is there's one giant problem that, that's, that needs solving right now. And I understand like people on these altcoin projects are interested in disintermediating a lot of other things, but like the priority right now is to bolster up this foundation at the very base of human value transfer. And so mm -hmm. I, I just have trouble deviating my attention anywhere else. I'm curious, mm -hmm. I, I know you've, at least your tone has sort of been similar. What were sort of your takeaways of that conversation with Voorhees? Has he moved you at all in terms of where your, your needle currently sits? No, you know, I'm in a similar situation where I hold 100% Bitcoin. So 
if I'm not telling you what I think and you just want to see what's in my portfolio, that's it, right? That's my skin in the game. However, again, in the interest of being non-dogmatic, I don't want to call myself or identify as a Bitcoin maximalist, especially because of this toxic us versus them, everything's a scam, you're a scammer. Like none of this, in my view, is productive. Now, I'm Mm -hmm. not saying it doesn't serve any purpose. I think, and I've talked about this a lot, but early in Bitcoin's existence, you needed that. You need a very strong cultural immune system so it can be scrappy and outcompete these other projects and survive, frankly. But as Bitcoin matures and it becomes a more globally adopted, widely accepted protocol, I don't think toxic culture remains relevant. And the simple thought here is like, okay, do we have toxic TCPIP or HTTP maximalists today? No, we don't. We just fucking use it because it's the standard. <laughs> did we? So, I, I wonder if we ever did. So I think what I would say to, all, to the toxic maximalists, like in my view, is have fun becoming irrelevant. I just don't think it's. I don't think it's useful. And then I'll, further, as we talked about earlier, there's so much gray here. It's not like oh, that human is a scammer, and so you just put them in bucket scammer forever. It's like. A human being is a lot of things, right? If you're just going to reduce them to one label in your mind, that's on you. You're going to be dumber. You're going to be less capable of dealing with the world. If you just put someone in, they're a scammer, they're a non-scammer, they're a status, they're a non-status. Like we're all tangled up in this mess in a lot of different ways. And we're all, the Austrians make this point. Nobody's wearing one hat. Nobody's filling one singular role, right? We're constantly changing and moving. So I just think how I would render value from someone, I get, again, somewhat inspired by Peterson, I'm not going to get value from the Bible-thumping, zealot, toxic Bitcoin maximalist. It's like, Bitcoin or get the fuck out or have fun staying poor. Like I would not get value from that as a new entrant to the space. What I would get value from is someone willing to get into the gray and get into the nuance, like dissect these arguments, make an informed decision. Yeah. Um, and that's what the thing with Voorhees was, right? It's titled An Inquiry into Decentralization. And that's my conversation point. Can anything else become decentralized? I still don't know. Um, I'm not convinced that even if something could, though, that I would still deviate from a 100% Bitcoin allocation. Right. Because the risk-adjusted returns are just, yes. it's the market for money, right? And it doesn't need to do anything new. Yeah. So even if you told me today Ethereum was decentralized 100% by whatever metric and it was going to succeed beyond all of our wildest dreams, I still think it's one-tenth maybe the market cap of Bitcoin at maturity. So that's where I'm at. I think it's important for people that are being introduced to this stuff to find somebody who's going to give them some real I mean, real information and, and give them some idea of like, well, if you're going to buy something here, buy Bitcoin first, understand this. Like, and this is just really a safety mechanism for new people. So they're not just walking into the shitcoin casino and buying XRP or something because yeah. this is going to be an interbank transfer. Like that's already been completely negated by a lot of things going on. It's yeah. obviously lightning, but th- these people need to have some chops to disseminate the wheat from the chaff in this space. Right. And you simply don't have that when you're new at this. And right. so recommending Bitcoin for them is a simple play to make sure that they don't get hurt really badly. And I think yeah. that's understandable. But the toxicity, I mean, it isn't helping anybody to make some stupid, bold assertion about something with absolutely nothing backing it, just a void. The, where I would like defend the maximalist ideas and where we deliver a lot of them is like, in the marketplace of ideas, we have the right to say we think these are shitty investments. Of course. But I think there's a difference between saying this is a bad investment. I don't see the risk-adjusted returns, especially in comparison to Bitcoin. Conflating that with maliciousness, malevolence, and evil isn't fair, right? Mm. And so I think, um, obviously, with all of these projects riding the coattails of the, the, what we deem as the one major innovation, like it's a massive spectrum of mm motivations and products. And um, yeah, I think our message and the reason, especially with the demographic we're communicating with, which is the middle class and a lot of newer entrants is like, be very careful because one of these protocols is not like the other. 100%. And I, you know, completely agree. We're all entrepreneurs, right? We're all trying to map 
our current action to future market data. This is just my entrepreneurial perspective. Mm-hmm. I think in 10 or 15 years, toxic maximalism will be a chapter in the Bitcoin history book. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like I got a lot of shit recently for having Raul on my show and for having Voorhees. And literally, this is what toxic Bitcoin <laughs> maximalists tell me. I should have known better. Don't give a scammer your platform. And I'm like, dude, I would talk to the head of the Bank of International Settlements. Yes. Yeah. Who is the biggest <laughs> scammer that I am aware of on earth if I thought it would render value to my audience. Let's get him on what is money, Rob. So long as I am adhering to the principles of life, liberty, and property, and I'm, I'm speaking the truth as best that I can, like, I don't see how I'm doing a disservice to anyone. But they'll tell you flat out, like, no, yeah. they're a scammer. And I'm like, in my opinion, that's low resolution thinking. You're trying to reduce the entire complexity of the world to a label that you're comfortable with in your own mental model versus asking the hard questions about decentralization. Is it possible? Do you know? Like, are you Nostradamus? I don't think you are. So what Raul did on your episode, which I listened to, was phenomenal. Like he walked us through the last hundred years of how this has all played out. Mm -hmm. I mean, as far as I remember, he wasn't shilling shit coins. It wasn't like he was telling you to go buy... Uh, Solana or something, uh, he may have mentioned it, but the value proposition from him is that he's a guy who gets this macro economic outlook and he yeah. gave you a whole bunch of good information to base some of your ideas on. I don't understand how anybody could take that as a negative. Like the guy's an in- incredibly intelligent dude. I mean, the counter argument would be that he advertises or sells shit coins on his platform. And again, it's like, I'm not going i just well i refuse to think at that resolution where you're just trying to put someone in a bucket and check a, it just doesn't make sense to me like if a guy has valuable insights to share that i think my audience will mutually consensually exchange their time to receive the information then what's who's getting hurt in this equation. Yeah, it also just takes hard work to develop well-rounded ideas. Back to our uh, religious Christianity discussion, like a lot of the aversions I had growing up was just this well-insulated and curated groupthink where it's like, no, we don't ask questions. We don't engage with Christian toxicity. (laughs) It's Christian toxicity, right? Yep. We don't engage with with atheist thinkers and agnostic thinkers. Like this is who we engage with. So regardless of how high your conviction is that Bitcoin's where where it's at, which ours, ours at this date and time is very high, okay? We will never stop engaging in these conversations with people of differing opinions because the moment we do, you should stop listening to our show. That's a red flag. Like we're constantly exposing ourselves to other ideas to help bolster our own understandings of how things fit together. Dialogue over dogma forever. I mean, that's this is core to freedom. And that's like, I don't care. People want to give me shit about this. It's like, keep throwing it at me. You think I've, I've been through so much more than getting called names on social media. Like that means little to nothing to me. And if I can just, if even I can be the one guy or group of guys holding out this principle of dialogue above all else, that's good for me. Like that feels right. Yeah. Have fun staying poor is almost the equivalent of like heathens go to hell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Let's do, let's go on street corner. We're going on street corners with signs, man. Yeah. Uh, people have beaten us that we got to go door to door. Yeah. Door to door is the way. Yep. yep. We're going straight Jehovah's Witnesses on this. <laughs> yeah. um, Rob, we have to go back to some basics because I think you are one of the best equipped individuals to do so. And I think our audience deserves to hear you kind of walk through this. Uh, this is not going to be easier for you to summarize, but we've heard you do it a few times and you do a great job. Why is Bitcoin the best money our species has ever had? The 30 second pitch, which I've delivered before, is that you don't even have to think about it as money, although clearly that's very important for deeper understanding. I think you could just think of it as an insurance policy on central banking or fiat currency. So the more dollars they print, the more valuable the policy becomes. Uh, but this policy has the additional advantage of being a non counterparty policy, right? You don't, you just hold Bitcoin, you don't need an insurance company to pay out the policy when they debase the currency. It just, it pays out automatically, right? Through, through Bitcoin's uh, virtuous cycle of growth, frankly. 
But more deeply, you know, and I guess maybe a more fundamental question would be like, clearly, uh, what is money? It's the namesake of the show, but there's a lot of answers to that. But one of the answers that I've been wrestling with lately is that, you know, money is like the base layer operating system for human action. It is, and you could also think of just incentives. Like we know that incentives shape human action. We know that. I mean, that's so fucking obvious. If you don't, when you meet someone, right? What's the first question out of your mouth? Like you're going to know, them, oh, what do you do? What do you do for a living? It's like, what? how do you spend the majority of your life, time, and energy? It's in pursuit of money. I don't give a, sh- like, unless you're just born rich and you are an artist on the side of some kind, like the vast majority of people that are working to survive spend most of their time in pursuit of money. Therefore, the patterns of action and behavior that they adopt and encode themselves with are shaping them, right? You're, we know something I learned listening to Peterson and talking to Verveke is that semantic knowledge like that we have in our mind, it percolates up from procedural knowledge. So we've been acting out things a lot longer than we've been thinking about acting out things. This is like a meta self-reflection of what we do all the time. So the very nature of knowledge itself comes from what we do all the time. So if what we do all the time is in pursuit of money, then it's like money as the prime incentive is actually shaping the development of procedural knowledge, which percolates up into semantic knowledge, shapes our worldview, shapes our relationships, our hierarchies, all the above. So just imagine what happens when you corrupt the base layer, right? If you're just using the computer analogy, if you corrupt the base layer Windows operating system or whatever Linux kernel you're working with, What do you think happens to every software application inside of that computer? Everything you try to do to control that computer towards a certain aim, like it's not going to work, right? It's going to have errors, it's going to have mistakes, problems. So maybe that's, I mean, I guess I need to answer the question why Bitcoin? Incorruptible money, basically, right? Incorruptible base layer shaping and sculpting human action through incentives. And the incentives, frankly, as we touched on earlier, is like pursue your self-interest to the hilt as an entrepreneur. So maximize the freedom of the individual, but bound that freedom by the private property rights of others so that you cannot extend your freedom beyond the private property rights of others. Like this, I think this is maybe one of the core problems too, is that everyone wants to be free. Like everyone wants to be 100% free, self-owned. I don't, you could maybe argue there's some weird psychological edge cases where people have been abused and they're dependent or whatever, but just born naturally, natural slate, you pretty much want to be free, right? It's like you can hardly imagine the ideal life without freedom incorporated in that vision. I can't imagine anyone having this ideal vision for their life and it have slavery embedded in that anywhere. Just that doesn't make sense to me. So the problem, this is maybe kind of a Christian angle on it, is that people, everyone wants to be 100% free, but maybe that desire also can become immoral when people try to become, say, 120% free, right? What if I become 100% free, but I also get 20% of someone else's labor or property, you know, just by coercing them a little bit or, you know, a little bit of threat of force or a little bit of violence occasionally. So we needed a a base layer incentive schema to bound that pursuit of freedom such that we can only be 100% free individually. And it's excessively expensive or difficult to encroach on the property of others. Because that's what we have in the world today, right? It's these, you know, I hate the term, the elite, but... Parasites. Parasites. Status in their capacity as statist, right? I'm not, and no one again is any pure thing. I'm not trying to low resolution, reduce an individual to just a label, but humans in their capacity as statist that are living off of tax revenue, which is the proceeds stolen from the productive economy, they are effectively 120 or 30% free right? because they own themselves. They probably don't pay taxes themselves and they're getting some of the tax revenue uh, that's being stolen from others. So this is like, it's an immoral 
excessive pursuit of freedom almost that we need to properly bound within the the institution of private property. I mean, even within the Bitcoin realm, there is an is absolutely an element of submission. You're submitting to the protocol that is Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Like you have to yep. every human being has to grapple with this discovery of absolute scarcity. There is no cheating. You may wish you were an OG that got this at three dollars. You're mm-hmm. fucking not. You're buying mm-hmm. it at sixty thousand and you're gonna like it. Like there are some realities you still have to submit to. And there is no twisting in any way, shape, or form. You can't get ahead by breaking the rules in this protocol. I mean, it's it's a mind fuck, Rob. Yeah. Well, this is why, you know, submission to truth is freedom, right? If you don't submit to the reality of gravity or thermodynamics and you you know, don't construct an adequate bone structure to resist gravity, or you just spill your energy all over the space, you know, wastefully, you're not, you're not sufficiently conservative, then you're going to fail as an organism. Your survival strategy will not propagate. So Bitcoin is something similar. It's like the thermodynamics of money, right? It's like this fixed rule set nobody can do anything about. So we all have to adapt our survival strategies to it. This is at the individual level, the institutional level, and ultimately the nation state level. How do you see the game theory playing out in your life? So here we sit at a trillion dollar market cap. Uh, It's clear that you think there's a very good, if not inevitable progression towards this being base layer human value transfer protocol. Like how, how do you see this playing out in your lifetime? I would first, this is another thing I've been retooling lately in my communication strategy is I'm very reticent to call Bitcoin inevitable. I mean, it's like, okay, seems pretty likely just needs to continue to survive. And it's, you know, fixed supply money eating infinitely supplied money. It all makes sense. It's optimized for survivability. So there's nothing the nation state can do about it. So it's like, okay, TikTok next block, it wins. But the reason I'm reticent to say that and think that way is because it may give some people the false sense that it's okay to rest on your laurels. Mm. Like there's a lot of work to be done. And it's not just working on Bitcoin, building up Bitcoin, <clears throat> seeing that the network proliferates and can accommodate a global digital non-state economy, but it's also resisting the onslaught of statism that is rising really quickly in the world. So it's, we can't just Say, ah, Bitcoin's inevitable. I'm going to go dick off and sit on the porch and drink moonshine and whatever, smoke weed. Like you need to work. You need to find your thing, find your, your sweet spot and apply your energies towards the success of this network because your life actually depends on it. Maybe not your life directly, maybe not this generation, but if you have family members or kids or anyone, anyone's life you consider beyond yourself, then um, almost certainly, directly or indirectly, you have people that depend on this thing succeeding. Otherwise, they're going to get damaged under the current model at some point. Um, so it's not inevitable. Or I don't like to say it's inevitable, although it might be pretty damn close. And I already have this public proclamation out there. It's like, I think by the year 2035, the US dollar is hyperinflated or it is so, the implementation is so much different. We're going to have this walled garden US central bank digital currency that's fully controlled, attached to your vaccine passport or social credit score system, whatever model the West rolls out, it's going to be tyranny money, frankly. Um, and I think other states will follow suit, but you know, the best, the brightest, uh, those seeking truth and freedom, I think will find Bitcoin ultimately. And I think that migration, right, of purchasing power away from fiat and CBDCs onto freedom money will just dissolve the state over time. So that's how I see it playing out. But I'll say with the, the amount, you know, time, putting a time to projections like this is always a fool's errand. 
Yeah. Because like, who knows? Could be 150 years, could be 15, could be one and a half. Who knows? But what I try to do is just follow the economics, follow the incentives, follow the money. That's how you establish a accurate directional analysis of where things are going. This is a point that I've I've made very clear to a couple of close friends. Like this really could be important enough that it could save your life at some point in the future. If you have a decent amount of this and it's not a get rich quick scheme, it's not a joke. There's so many people that still think this is a joke or this is a, another, you know, tulip bubble. Hmm. It's deadly serious and you should take it very seriously. It's also moving quickly. I mean, listening to BTC 001 with you and Pish, I think you recorded that in 2020. Like what hit me is like a lot of shit has happened even since then. I mean, what you've kind of highlighted is like the sovereign individual thesis of like, we're going to live in a world where there's going to be jurisdictional arbitrage opportunities and this honey badger is going to mate and spread its offspring in the locations that are most advantageous. I mean, (laughs) I'm sure you're looking at El Salvador and I'm not here to like, glorify El Salvador or Nayib Bukali or any of this. I'm just saying this is insane. I mean, you look at the incentives behind Bitcoin City, the bond issuance, this being legal tender. We're already seeing the low points where this water can flow and it's happening very quickly. Yeah, it is. Um, And that is a large open question in my mind is like where to be throughout all of this transition. Um, And one of the things I've observed is that there appears to be much more sanity and stability in more religiously rooted parts of the world. Now, I'm speaking specifically to my own limited experience here in the United States. So when I, I've traveled a lot since COVID, actually. New York, LA, San Francisco, urban areas are a nightmare, right? They're a different country. They're, they're dystopian, communistic psycho madhouses agree that may sound extreme and i'm not saying it it's entirely like that but it's like going that way so quickly that it's mind-blowing i go to la one month and it's like pretty weird and i come back two months later and it's twice as weird and you know it's just there's there's something really bad a really bad undercurrent there but when i go to tennessee or miami or texas Places that are more along the Bible Belt, or in the case of Miami, has a huge Latin uh, cultural influence, uh, which is very, very Catholic rooted. This this uh, attachment, I think, to re- religion somehow gives people resistance to the deification of the state. Mm. Whereas if you look at something like LA, people are just like, no one is fucking religious there. It's just total postmodernism. Everyone lives their own truth. Blah blah mm-hmm. blah. They're just taking it, man. Like vaccine passport, vac- yeah, whatever you say, boss, just give me one more serving of that, please. You don't want to be in a culture of compliance, I think is what's key to this. Yeah. And I think, again, in the US, more Christian rooted, and I'm not, I'm not restricting it to just Christianity, again, just my own experience, more religiously rooted communities are going to be more resilient in this phase of history. Yeah, I feel like the state has, or the lack of religion has deified the state for a lot of people. 100%. It's such a spectrum though. And it's so, so much of it depends on like what angle you're coming from. Yeah. The angle I'm coming from, I'm sort of averse to hopping back into that. And I think other people are coming from the other side. But, you know, whether these things are fictions or not, being completely untethered is maybe not advantageous and pulling crutches away before people are ready isn't always productive. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to have yeah. to do some more thinking about sort of that, that thesis that's growing in your head there, Rob. Yeah. Maybe whatever classify them as fictions, but useful fictions are very useful for human beings. It's actually what that distinguishes us from animals, right? Everything you you take to be real mathematics, civil liberties, the nation state, these are all useful fictions yep. at the end of the day. Bitcoin at the top so, of the list. Yeah, we off, we've yeah. said on this show before, Bitcoin is a fiction. It just happens yeah. to be a fiction that's going to be insanely useful for humanity. Yes. Yes, it is. Robert, thank you for your time. Um, we, we really enjoyed this. This was an awesome discussion. 
Thank you guys. I did as well. Um, I, again, I appreciate what you guys are doing, pulling double duty and helping to get the word out there. I think that, um, it is incumbent on us that have come to see the truth of Bitcoin to spread the message through our own unique filter. You know, that's how this thing propagates because, you know, you guys have a certain, everyone has their own unique lens on reality. And when we interpret these facts and share them out again, um, it reaches certain people that it otherwise wouldn't have. Right. So I like, I'm very big on this idea of raising an army of educators to whatever extent possible. Like, you know, do a little podcast, write a little newsletter, host a little meetup, just talk about what you're finding here. You'd be unbelievably surprised how powerful it can be. So that's, that's a message I'd like to go out on is like, even if you're nervous or you're self-conscious or you're, you don't feel good about it or you're not good at public speaking or you have whatever self-doubt, it's like, throw that shit in the trash can. This is so much bigger than you. You know, that was me. Like I wanted to be this privately wealthy guy that no one knew about, just lived a nondescript existence. And then I found Bitcoin and I started writing about it and talking about it. And I'm like, okay, people want to hear more of this. Here we go. And now this is what I do and I love it. So I, I just hope others will, if they have something to say, I hope they'll say it. Well said. Have a great rest of your day, Rob. We appreciate your time and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Thank you guys. This was great. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at blue underscore collar BTC. We invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind. And our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.